How would you feel if you were in Ontario, Canada, in a canoe at the foot of a beautiful falls with a rod in your hand as the mist came up over the water in the early morning and you caught a nine and three-quarter pound walleye? And then you went back to your camp and in that evening as you were getting ready to fix it, you had the fried potatoes ready. The beans were sitting on the edge of the rock with a little flame there. You had filleted your fish after you'd taken pictures of him, and you were about to eat him, and someone said, Hold it. I just noticed something. You said, What is it? And he was reading the back of his fishing license. And on the fishing license it said, Warning. Fish caught in the waters of, and then it gave the province and the area where you are, may be dangerously contaminated with, and then it gave you a listing of a lot of heavy metals and various commercial uh, chemicals and pollutants and so on, and it would be advised not to eat the flesh of these fish. That actually has happened. They have issued in Saskatchewan, for example, in Canada, warnings on the back of fishing licenses that people should beware of the fish caught in these beautiful, seemingly untrammeled, unspoiled areas of the beautiful Canadian North. Or if you're taking a bite into the rosiest, most delicious Washington apple, it looks so crisp and so good in the television commercials pushing the apple industry, and you polish it off, you know, some do on their sleeve, you take a bite of it, and someone says, I want to show you something. Pulls out a little knife, and he begins to kind of scrape on his apple out of the same sack as yours. And you look, lo and behold, a little bit of wax is kind of accumulating. He keeps scraping, and you find out, well, for pity's sake, what's that? You say, well, it's an accumulation of a wax that they spray on there when they're washing and polishing the apple, and in it is a powerful preservative, including the very same preservative they put on meats. It's akin to formaldehyde. <gasps> it is? And then you find out by chemical analysis in laboratories that your beautiful Washington apple began as a little tiny green developing apple as the little flower fell off by being sprayed with a powerful chemical which set the little flower so it wouldn't blow off in a wind or fall off. And then you find that about a month went by and they sprayed it with a powerful pesticide. And then they had already treated all of the soil in which the roots are reaching for their nutrients with powerful herbicides and fungicides. And that aerial spray had been put on by these ag cats that had gone over the Washington apple orchards and during the lifespan of that apple, a very few months from its tiny little flower until it became a nice, big, bright, red, delicious apple and went to the food processing plant, it was sprayed about five or six times. And then it was coated with this preservative, and there it is, shiny, beautiful, and just like the apple in Snow White, deadly. Well, not really. Uh, you could be eating bushels of apples and maybe much of your life and not really experience any immediate consequences. What is wrong with our world in which we live? What's wrong in society? I could really shorten that down a lot by saying what is right, couldn't I? Because I'd have a whole lot easier chore at hand. What can we talk about in our lives that is right? Benny Sharp's building a home. He's trying to contract that he is contracting it himself. 
He's finding out, as he deals with people in business, as all of the rest of you have and do, that most men are liars, that most men are cheats, that most men are irresponsible, that most men are not men of their word, that you can't trust them. As you move about in society, are you aware of all of the multi-billion dollar industry that has gone into protecting ourselves from one another? If I were to reach in my pocket, except my big wad of keys is right now in my briefcase, I can at least find my motel key. It's locked. Find the car key. It is locked. If I had my other keys, my home is locked. My gun cabinet is locked. My safe, I have a small safe in the closet, is locked and is even behind and underneath some uh, uh, sheets and linen so you wouldn't even know it is there. It is locked. It has my old gold watch and it has a little sack of dimes and gold coins in there that we've stashed away like mattress money. It's locked. You wear your pockets out with your keys because everything must be locked. Why? Well, because people steal. This morning when I went to pick up Mr. Sharp and go back for breakfast to meet my wife and sons, there was a headline on a newspaper right over here in the lobby of this hotel. Down within 35, 40 miles of where I live, five helpless people were found, four of them lying like so many logs along a roadside, just employees, probably teenagers, some of them, of a Kentucky Fried Chicken fast food stand in Kilgore, Texas, brutally shot, gangland execution, forced to lie down along the side of a lonely road yesterday, just like Hitler's Wehrmacht, or other, I should say Hitler's SS, putting the Jews to death in World War II, each one of those people hearing the gunshot sound like a cannon enter the body of the person next to him, waiting for their turn. It's a sick, filthy, rotten world we live in, brethren. It's a hateful place. Crime, divorce, dishonesty, ugly, filthy cities, perverted sex, pornography. People are cheats, thieves, liars, crooks. It's all got to be changed. Everything about it has got to be changed. Now, we're here picturing the millennium. Is that a concept in your notes? Is it a concept underlined in your Bible, or is it a gripping, living concept in your mind so that you know exactly what is going to take place in this world in the next few years? Perhaps we could, by analogy, say that we are going to take a little journey in a spaceship this morning, a time capsule, and we're going to project ourselves forward in time into a number of scriptures to which I will refer, and I'll read a few of them briefly to hurry along. The 20th chapter, the book of Revelation, for example, and in verse 4, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the lives of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And who are they which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads. It has to do with their willingness, not something that is imposed upon them at force of arms, but with their volition, with their worship, with their willingness, or in their hands. And they lived and they ruled with Christ a thousand years. 
In our time capsule, let's go to 1985, 87, 1992, and finally it is now 2004. Behind us was the great economic collapse of all of the Western world. All of the known monetary systems came tumbling down, and nations reverted to a gold and silver and a barter standard. Behind us, the collapse of the modern nations of the United States, of Britain, much of Western Europe, the rise of despotism, the complete dismantlement of much of the great colonial empire, the Soviet Union, and accordance in the terms of a non-aggression pact reached between an emerging new United States of Europe of ten nations under dictatorships with millions of young men in various military and paramilitary organizations, with the United States of America having been locked in the grips of not only drought and famine, disease, the breaking of our national agricultural backbone, but the breaking of our very societal structure by race wars, by the wars of individuals against their own neighbors for dwindling means of survival in the midst of drought and poverty and disease, the like of which no nation had ever before seen. And finally, the emergence of a great Afro-bloc of, I mean now, North African Islamic bloc, a man emerged who was the king of the South. The attempted embargo again of 96% of the oil upon which Europe depends, up to 96% of its dependency for fueling its industries from the Middle East. World War III has already been fought. It is waged on and on for literally years, as did World War II. It didn't begin with atomic weapons, but it began to end with atomic weapons. And finally, Almighty God had to intervene. The heavenly signs occurred. Millions repented and were sealed and waited for the second coming of Christ. A whole year was yet to pass, during which the great trumpet plagues and the final seven last plagues came thundering down upon this earth. And eventually, Christ rendered the heavens and stood upon the Mount of Olives, and with him the 144,000, a vast, innumerable, countless multitude, millions of angels, all of God's righteous dead, Peter, Paul, David, Jeremiah, Amos, Habakkuk, they were all there. So was Daniel. Yes, and so was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they, with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, begin to reconstruct a new world. The oceans look like blood, black like pudding. Hardly a green tree is left standing. The total population of the earth, but 10%, 400 and a few million, perhaps less than the population of India, sprinkled like days scattered refugees over the entirety of the earth where four and a half billion human beings previously lived. Buzzards, vultures, eagles are so gorged they only stagger. They can't even take to the air because God has bid them to the supper of feeding even upon the flesh of kings. It says in your Bible, in the book of Acts, chapter 3 and verse 21, that the heavens have received our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, only until a certain time, until the setting right the restoring, the restitution of everything. Now, when it says the restitution of all things, it means God is going to recreate 
the Garden of Eden. There are chapters in the Bible, many of them, that depict exactly what is going to happen during that time. In the latter chapters of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel sees this huge river that seems to fan out to a plain east and west from a giant cleavage of a new rift valley that happens at the time of the second coming of Christ, where sky-blue water comes out of the site right where Christ is to stand. The entire city is split in half. It becomes a huge, big mountain now, like a valley. And it appears that a huge river goes out and flows in both directions, and wheresoever those waters go, according to those chapters, it heals the waters. Trees and shrubs and plants and grass begin to grow once again. And it is a river miles and miles across, perhaps as big as the Amazon or the Mississippi, but it is crystal clear. And the process of rehabilitation, of restoration of the entire earth begins. It's such a vast subject, I couldn't cover it in a year, speaking for five hours a day. I couldn't cover it in enough volumes to fill the library shelves of several huge libraries. I couldn't cover it in the lineage of the Encyclopedia, the Americana, the World Book, and the Catholic Encyclopedia all together, because I'm dealing with a complete total change in the weather patterns of the entirety of the earth. I'm dealing with every mountain and island being moved out of their place and all of topography and geography completely changed. I'm dealing with the fact that the vast Mato Grosso of Brazil now looks like fertile valleys and plains. I'm dealing with the fact that the great uninhabitable Pamir Knot and the Himalayas and the Atlas Mountains and the great Kalahari Desert are verdant, green, beautiful, look like a little idyllic valley in Switzerland or look like perhaps a part of the Willamette Valley in Oregon, or like a gorgeous farm up near Ames, Iowa. There are no more steep, impassable mountain barriers. There are no more horrible typhoons, hurricanes, tornadoes, violent weather that destroys and rips up farms and homes and even knocks down tall buildings and takes away tens of thousands. No more earthquakes. The tectonic plates of the earth have been stilled. The very continents have been put in their original position. The very land masses which form the earth's weather and cause the currents of the ocean and the clouds to pile up against certain mountain barriers and cause some areas to receive way too much rain with a resultant infestation of insects and tropical rainforests and endemic diseases and other areas just over the mountains to be barren desert. All of these are gone. Now... The deepest valley, like Death Valley, which a few years ago received not one drop of rain in an entire year, looked like an idyllic, beautiful park. Rivulets and brooks and little fountains and streams and shrubs and gorgeous trees looking like the most artful landscape architect with the most dedicated crew of gardeners went in there and put together one of the most beautiful arboretums you could ever view. That's the way God describes the world. I want to come very quickly to only a part of this vast subject. We are told in the Bible, Revelation, the second chapter, and verse 26, To him that overcometh and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Oftentimes it's very difficult, I think especially for you ladies, to know exactly what that means. I'd like to see the hands of how many have ever been before a judge. I have. How many of you have ever been before a judge in your life? 
frightening experience, wasn't it? I won't embarrass anyone or ask you to polarize yourselves by asking how many of you think you got a fair deal, or how many of you think the judge was really kindly and honest, because there will be a number of hands that will go up. There are cases like that, certainly. But God's Word tells us, and our common sense tells us, that there is no real justice in the world when all is said and done, that mass murderers go free, that those who have enough money in the multi-billion dollar drug industry in this country, for example, can buy their way all the way into the highest offices in the land, that money does in fact talk, that poor people without the money pay the bill, go to jail, go to prison, and people who are multimillionaires rarely ever pay for their crimes. And we happen to know that from the executive branch to the legislative branch to the judiciary branch there is corruption and there is graft and there is lying and there are various polarities and prejudices. We have a man like James Watt at the cabinet level of our government who is not only a person who is victimized by foot-in-mouth disease, a person of perhaps questionable intellect, but a racist and a bigot who is in the president's cabinet. Who, who makes racial slurs, who makes slurs against people like a lady sister of ours in her front row sitting in her wheelchair today. To him, a cripple is a, a nasty word. It's a slight. It, it means someone who is inferior. Well, as a man with two deaf sons, I take umbrage at such remarks from a person at the cabinet level of the United States of America. So when I look at all of this and I try to look at the national picture of nation after nation, of the state level, cities, towns, villages, farms, and then individual homes, and then the family structure. As I look at government, education, business, commerce, travel, art, language, literature, as I look at the entire socio-economic structure of the globe or the world as we know it today, the simple essentials of each individual family searching for food, shelter, and clothing. I want to know what's wrong with the world the way it is today and what must be set right. How many ladies, how many women in this audience, if in possession of the same number of facts as are brought to the judge, would make the same decision? I know that judges are hamstrung by the laws, and judges don't make the laws, usually. They merely enforce them and interpret them. A judgment is a decision rendered by a judge in the light of the written statutes, which are pretty much put there by the voters who put their elected officials in office who then, in their bills that go through their various state senates or our United States House to the Senate to the President, and are finally put on the books as a law. Now today, according to the law, we have many mass murderers who are yet alive, and some are free. We have people freed from the possible consequences of their crimes by minor technicalities, like the man that I've told people down in Tyler about so many times who beat a young girl to death with a motorcycle chain. And because there was some thought she might still be alive, and because the police begged the young man to help them find her body, he sat in the police station told them where to go find her. 
They went to look and couldn't find her. They came back and said, "We tell us again, it, it's a big thicket of woods. We don't know specifically where to look. Against the advice of his attorney, he said, I'll go along with you. Maybe she's still alive. Maybe we can find her. So he did. Went right to the body. There she is. But she was dead. He had murdered her by beating her to death with a motorcycle chain. The trial came up, and a clever lawyer decided that since his own lawyer had said, no, don't go show them where is this girl you have beat to death, that that was not right. That was illegal. That wasn't honest. That wasn't square. It wasn't fair. He shouldn't have been allowed to do that. That compromised him. That told the jury. That told the judge something they're not supposed to know. They're not supposed to know the facts of the case. That's not fair. It's not playing fair. You keep them in the dark in there. Don't let them know the facts. You only let them know what a clever lawyer lets them know, kind of easing it out little by little as he decides to get a little bit and a piece of the picture here and there to deceive the jury and the judge. But that was a pretty tough judge. I think his name is Justice, by the way. That's a good name for a judge, Judge Justice. We got one in Tyler. And he sent the man up. He was convicted. Well, they appealed it. It went to an appellate court down in Austin, and the appellate court overturned it on that technicality, and that man was put right back out in the street. And I saw an interview in the Tyler newspaper with the father of the girl who was killed. Now, he knew what ought to be done to that young man. I want to ask for a volunteer, and I want it to be a lady. What should have been done with that young man? Anybody bold enough to say a lady? Yes. Ought to be beat to, get to death with a motorcycle chain. How about that? That's a bold woman. I, I'm, a lot of you are going to say that. How many women were thinking that that might be what you'd do if you were a judge? Huh? Now, you, if you had the power of God, what would you do next? What would you do next? You'd, you'd resurrect him, wouldn't you? I mean, later on. You know, when it was his time, you'd resurrect You haven't lost anything, have you? You just taught him a lesson. See, when you have the power of God, you've got the power to resurrect somebody. But when you make someone really come face to face with what they've done, they must reach out to embrace the agony and the suffering that they have afflicted on the other person, and it must reach their heart. It must reach down into their emotion to the point they are just broken up, and they say, oh, what a wretch I was to do that to that poor person. How could I have done that? And when they repent of that to the depth of their being, a wise and a merciful God will forgive them. But first, restitution must be made. There is payment. Now, Christ paid the penalty. So if repentance, if deep repentance comes first, then what? Then you don't beat him to death with a motorcycle chain. Because God's Holy Spirit is capable of getting so deep into the heart of that individual that he can actually wince in his sleep for years to come as he remembers every blow. He will abhor himself from then on. The Apostle Paul was converted. He had God's Holy Spirit. And yet, as a converted, mature apostle of God, he said, Oh, wretched man that I am! He couldn't ever shake the knowledge. He, he must have lived with the piteous screams in his, in his ears of what he had done to some of those people in God's church when he caused them to blaspheme. And it dogged him. He knew he was forgiven, but he never forgot it. You see, God will forget, and God will forgive. But a lot of times we don't forget, and maybe it's just as well. 
And Paul is an example of that because for the duration of his physical life, he was always able to remember what some people forget. Remember the scripture that says when a person is doltish and disobedient and refuses to acknowledge God's word, that he is forgotten, that he was purged, remember the scripture, from his old sins. It's not wrong if your conscience still grabs you now and then and says, how could I do that for things that you have repented of? That's good. But you see, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth works in a human physical society. It really does work that way. A few scriptures about Christ's return. We know many of them. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17 talks about how he will come with clouds. How we will be caught up in the air together with them that are the dead in Christ, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. But quickly go to Zechariah 14 and verse 4, and it says, In that very day... Those who are caught up together with him, Matthew 24, 29 to 31, the angels gather them out of the four corners of the earth, and they meet the Lord in the air, and in that very day his feet stand on the Mount of Olives, and they are the absolute rulers. Daniel 7, 18 to 27, the picture of the Ancient of Days, and how the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Daniel 2, 44. The rock that smote the image on its feet became a great mountain and filled the whole earth, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And turning now to the first chapter of the book of Luke, even what the angel said to Mary about the birth of Jesus Christ, he shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest, verse 32, Luke 1, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Over now to Micah, the fourth chapter. Isaiah the second says the same thing. In the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain, that's government, of the house of the eternal, almighty God, shall be established in the top of all of the mountains over all the other nations. And it shall be exalted above the hills, that's lesser countries. And people shall flow unto it. That gives you a little clue of what I want to talk about. Because I want to talk about buildings and culture and commerce and art, and transportation, and literature, and science, and education, and religion, and language in the millennium, the kingdom of God. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the eternal, into the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. What is his way to grow an apple? What is his way to build an automobile? What is his way to run a grocery store, if there should be such a thing, of which I'm not totally convinced yet, I'm ready to be convinced? What is God's way to run the world? We will walk in his paths. We've heard a little bit about his path, about the roadway we should walk. For the law shall go forth out of Zion, and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. It doesn't come from Bangladesh and from Korea and filter to Zion, and then they say, oh, that's the will of the people. Well, then it's government of the people and for the people and by the people, and the people have voted, and we have heard the voice of the people. No, it just comes from God to the people, benevolent, merciful, righteous, perfect, and holy, and also very, very powerful. And the word of the eternal from Jerusalem, and he shall judge. So he is the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary. 
among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they will beat their swords into plowshares, or let's say their tanks and their missiles and their jet aircraft into plowshares and pruning hooks into hoes and rakes and shovels and clippers and lawn edgers and trimmers, and maybe there will be noisy, sputtering internal combustion engines to make men's work easier for them so they can grow a, a huge belly and be a walking heart attack at age 43 uh, while they ride around on a little bitty miniature tractor over about a quarter of an acre, bumping along and going around the curbs and around a little tree about that big. Uh, I don't know, uh, but I sort of doubt it somehow. I sort of imagine that the average human individual we're going to run across, a human being now, under the government of God, human, natural, physical Israelites, in the kingdom of God, is going to be in pretty good shape. Disease will be eradicated because it will be removed at its source. And what is the source of disease? Wretched diet. No exercise. Bad habits. Soft, prepared, chemically polluted foods where the real nutrition has been taken out and artificial chemicals have been put back in. That won't happen. I'll tell you, the best mechanical means of plowing a field is the kind that eats the stubble from last year's crop and the grass that grows around here and there along the fence lines that you raise in a neighboring field, fertilizes the furrow as it goes, causes you to follow along behind it with a plow that really develops a tremendous set of biceps and triceps and pectoral muscles in your back, your legs, and your wind. And that is either a horse or a mule. Now, I don't know that God is going to make people return to a mule, but I can't see for the life of me why you would need a tractor barely, you know, small enough to, I mean, to get inside this building. I'm talking about a tractor that is so huge that you almost got to have a ladder to climb up on the tire and get in there, and it's got a gang plow almost as wide as this room. It costs you about $400,000 to buy, and you are out there plowing about 17 sections with this huge tractor. You know the average size of the American farm in some of these big states of ours anymore? It's gotten to the point where the average size is over a thousand acres in some cases. It just boggles your mind. That's not true here in the Ozarks. Average size might be a quarter of an acre. I don't know. But in the big farm belt of monoculture, that's the way it is. So because of monoculture, because of the depletion of the soil, they have to spray all the pesticides and herbicides and fungicides. They have to artificially fertilize. They have to fight the weather. And of course, because they've got monoculture or a single crop, they don't have the resistance like they would have if Dr. What was his name from Cornell who told me one time, only a few years ago, in the American Association for the Advancement of Science, he described nothing short than a family backyard vegetable garden Four rows of carrots, four of peas, four of beans, four of corn, four of spinach, four of lettuce, some more carrots, black-eyed peas, kale, squash, cabbage, maybe some romaine, and on and on and on because he said different insects and different types of fungi and different types of microorganisms in the soil attack different kinds of plants. And if you have them isolated, he said, further by a grassy section between each one where you would walk along the grass and maybe cultivate only four rows of something where they're not even necessarily right together in the same field, he said that is the most idyllic, he said, scientists and chemists, agronomists have discovered that is the best way to avoid crop disease and blight and insect infestation.
Isn't that amazing? Just the way a family would raise enough for themselves in their own backyard has been stated by a leading doctor in agronomy at Cornell to be the best way to raise vegetables. Well, sure it is, because whatever way is the best way to raise enough food for your family on one acre is the way God is going to do it. He says, every man will have an acre of ground. Boy, I wish I owned an acre. Uh, i I got to be careful. If I run out of my door to the side, I'm off my property. If I walk slow, put feet down carefully, there's my property line. I can look. and I swing a little wide coming to my driveway. My bumper went off my property. But if I'm real careful, I stay on my property. I don't own it yet. The bank owns it. They let me live there uh, under the uh, concept that I pay my bills on time. If I don't, they take it away. You ever gone through the disclosure process on closing, you go to the real estate office and you close on a home. How many of you have gone through the closing process on property? Could I see your hands? Okay. How many of you remember the absolute chilling shock you got when they trotted out that one fateful piece of paper and they said very soberly, now it's disclosure time. I now want to disclose to you how much money you will pay for this house if you pay every payment for 30 years. I can tell you about a piece of property in Tyler, Texas. It was purchased for $46,000, $12,000 down. Do you know what it's going to cost to buy that piece of property over 30 years? Anybody like to guess? Anybody with a real quick amortization schedule? Yes. Listen to this. That's perfect. 150 he said. Now, uh, do you hear that? Do you think he's off base? 156000 $46,000 piece of property. You pay for it over 30 years, you have paid $156,000. Who thinks that's right? Okay, no, no, don't, don't be embarrassed. I'm about to explain something. Well, no, I mean, yeah, I do, yeah. But, but really, it's not as bad as it seems because there's an element we've got to crank into our thinking. That is projected upon the last 30 years as to what was the value of the dollar in terms of the hours of labor it took to earn that dollar. And believe it or not, even I, as shocking as that sounds, cannot really say that that would be called usury. It may not even violate the principle of usury because over 30 years it projects forward that incredible inflation that will strike the dollar. So that's what you're really looking at. But it is amazing when you stop to think how much money a person could save if he never borrowed a dime. If you walked in to a real estate office with a, a briefcase full of money and you said, I want to buy that house, and you open it up, they'd probably just drop their uppers right there on the blotter and pick up their teeth and you know, put them back in and say, I don't believe it. But if you were to buy a house for cash, it doesn't make sense. A lot of people will tell you in today's society, because the way we're set up, you've got to have money out there earning money. And you should have leverage, and you should have your money working for you, and it should be controlling other properties and so on. But nevertheless, if you can buy cash, if you can buy a car for cash, you buy an $8,000 car, pay for it for five years, how much have you spent? About $16,000. Yeah, you pay almost double for an automobile. You just take a look. Take a look at the prices that, it, that you pay, and we're very aware of that because all of us live awful close to our wallets at the Feast Tabernacles. 
Many people are not faithful in saving a festival tithe, and I question that because I think they're cheating themselves and perhaps leaning very, very closely toward disobedience toward Almighty God. But they afflict themselves and their families and perhaps their brethren who have need by not doing so. And if they would save a full festival tithe, they would be so much better off. And God would bless them, I'm convinced, during the year more. But we've had our minds on that, and it is, it is a hard society in which we live monetarily, and it's difficult. Many people have their excuses, and I'm very familiar with every one of them. I must have heard them all by now. But still, it is very, very sad that people do not oftentimes have the money they should have to, to enjoy God's festival. Well, let's see what we're seeing here. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. I could talk for hours on this subject, and I've got to hurry, but I just get the vision here of huge scrap heaps. You know, outside of Tyler, there is a, a literal mountain. It's almost as big as this building in two parts. And I look at it, and it almost is like interesting sculpture because it consists of thousands of automobile engines and all kinds of parts. Mostly it's, it's blocks, as they say. And that's Tyler Pipe. And what they're doing is with a huge, big, round magnet on a crane, an electromagnet, they swing down there and they turn on the current and they just pick up a whole gob of these giant, big, greasy, filthy, rusty automobile engines and swing over here and truck along inside and dump it into a molten vat of bubbling molten metal. Well, of course, all the grease and the impurities and the other types of metals will, you know, be raked off in, in slag, but the steel or the iron or whatever it is they're trying to get will just melt down. And so they are recycling all those ancient old engines they've gotten from wreckers. The wreckers will have their trucks go by, and you'll see a double truck go by with a whole lot of automobiles with those ridiculous fins and tails on. It used to be somebody's family car, and it's about that thick now. And they had a big crusher come along and crunch, and I mean the glass and everything was still there, and here they go, about 20 or 30 of them on a big flatbed, and they're going to a place like that to be melted down and recycled. And I get the vision of just lines and lines, like out there at uh, is it State Air Force Base near Tucson, but there are thousands of acres of, I guess, billions of dollars worth of old B-17s and B-24s, B-25s and B-26s and the old uh, P-47s and P-51s and on down to the early age of the jet aircraft. There are some of the more modern jet aircraft out there and they'll never fly again. They were bought by the federal government and they're just sitting there creaking in the uh, Arizona sun and they are just so much waste material. I remember seeing just stacks and oh, would I have loved to have one in a picture that I have at home after World War I, it must have been five or six hundred of French and German World War I fighter aircraft stacked on their noses just like kindling or cordwood. And I thought, oh, you know, from the standpoint of a pilot, it would be nice to be able to redo one of those old things and fly it. But I think of these tanks, these ugly, and aren't they a bestial, snorting, ugly-looking beast with a giant snout protruding out reeking of powder and smoke, projecting a projectile into a building, exploding with shrapnel and tearing human life and limb apart. Ugly beasts that men make to kill one another, spouting flame and with infrared sighting devices and with rockets on them and so on, able to ford rivers even by 
crawling along underneath and putting up a snorkel and breathing from a completely watertight tank. They got them built like that these days. They can run along at 45 or 50 miles an hour, shooting that cannon and machine guns and a flamethrower. They're an ugly beast, and yet men exult in that. There's something of strength and power about a tank. So they mesmerize the young men. They show all these happy, good-looking young guys, and here they are spilling out of the back of this tank, and one of them shows you his infrared sighting device and shows some men running. Come on in, fellows, and it's coffee time. Hey, that's not the way it is in the Army. How many of you have been in the Army? Or the, let's say the military. How many have been in the military? Well, you know what I'm talking about. If you were there, that's not the way it is, is it? That wasn't the way it was when you were in there. It wasn't the way it was when I was in there. But they glorify war, reeking tubes of huge cannon and guns that kill human beings. This is a beautiful picture of every bit of that in a junkyard somewhere, gradually being melted down to make useful items and material. Neither shall they learn war anymore. You know, there's the War College in Washington, D.C., Graduates of West Point and even line and field officers or flag officers at various levels of their experience out in the military are sent to the war college. You know what they study? They go all the way back in ancient history. They study Alexander the Great. They study Cyrus, and Darius, and Hannibal. And they study the ancient Carthaginians and the Spartans, and the Greeks and Romans, and they study the Punic Wars, and they study World War I, and they study especially World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And then they study futuristic war, and they learn future tactics about missiles, and they have various test battles, mock battles, in which a tremendous segment of the United States is completely annihilated, and they have problems that they deal with on missile launches and on how many incoming missiles can be expected to get through and how many they can intercept and shoot down and how many Russian cities they can knock out. And they study that and they learn it and they get graded on how well they do. And they have mock battles where they move armies and air forces and navies around on the plotting boards with instructors to teach them how to kill, how to annihilate, how to destroy. And they're dealing with millions of lives. They're dealing with, all right, Leningrad is knocked out. Moscow is obliterated. New York and Los Angeles are gone. And now Omaha's got several incoming. And this is the language they use. And they sit at their computers and they study war. They don't study how to make a fine violin with their own hands. They don't study how to make a beautiful wool jacket to last for the next 10, 15 years. They don't study how to make a marvelous hand-built vehicle of some sort in which to ride. They don't study how to raise beautiful, blooded, sleek, gorgeous horses, or how these huge, big, beautiful cattle like the, what is it, the, the, the Hollandes type they have in Argentina that stand seven foot of the withers and are like a, a combination brown, Swiss, and Charolais, but they give milk as well as are a good meat cattle. They don't study that. They don't study nutrition at the war college. They don't study how to have healthy children and how to be the marvelous husband and father they should be. They study how to kill one another. It says here, Neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree 
I used to have some vines over in Pasadena. Don't anymore. Don't have fig tree either. I had a fig tree in Pasadena. I even had a little fig tree growing out of my palm tree. I had a great big palm tree with these big, you know, old dried fronds coming up. And a fig had fallen down in there. And a bunch of dirt had collected. And a little bitty old stunted fig tree grew out of there. And it always had a few figs on it every year. My wife and I would go and check on that thing. We just loved it. We never did tear it out of there because we thought that fig tree has got all kinds of tenacity. Uh, it has got audacity. It is a brazen little thing. It's got courage. And uh, it was pretty. It had a pretty little shape. I bet it's still there. If we'd go by and see, that'd break my heart, though, because I got kicked out of that house. But anyway, we had a backyard, which was almost like the millennium to me in Pasadena. I do get a little uh, nostalgic about that because I had a garden. And at one time or another, I grew everything that I just described to you. I mean, literally. I had parsnips in the ground for up to a year at a time, several kinds of squash, yellow crookneck and butternut, zucchini. I would grow about three kinds of lettuce. I've grown spinach and black-eyed peas up to my knees, great big long pods like that. Oh, man, I could grow anything there in Southern California because the topsoil was about six feet deep of black loam. It was just gorgeous. Of course, the weather, it was year-round. The only thing is the smog and all that stuff was on there. And I'll never forget the time our own college was going to come in there and give me some fertilizer. Well, I'd been reading articles and flailing away in the broadcast, you know, about chemical pollutants. Like the time I was over at Big Sandy, went out in the golf course one day, and I began to wheeze. My eyes were running, and I thought, what is that? And there was an absolute thick fog drifting across the golf course. I got on the phone. I said, call the county fire department. There's a fire over here somewhere. They said, no, that's, uh, Mr. Armstrong, that's our trash fill. That's the dump. And one of our guys, you know, one of our employees, I, he's probably still there, Got over there and struck a match, set fire to a landfill. Here I am on television, and I'm, I'm talking about solid pollution, and I'm flailing away about how that's not the way to, dis you know, that all you do is spread the pollutants over a broader area when you set fire to it. What about your neighbor? And I'm talking about stack technology and big old smokestacks, and I'm flailing away. Our own employees out there setting fire to the dump. You know what he said? The guy came shamefaced by where I was, and he said, Oh, well, I'll try to make sure that you're not here next time I set fire to it. <laughs> I thought, Oh, boy. You know, I thought maybe he was one of the three wise men, because he had just come from afar. <laughs> I thought Bronson might enjoy that one, I mean... He had just come from afar. But anyway, uh, they said, why can't we help you out? We've got some great fertilizer. Well, I've been studying all this and been in the broadcast, so they came over there. And, uh, you know, my, I began to have crop problems. And I, I thought, well, this is ridiculous. I mean, they give me all this lovely uh, soil, but I began to notice little pieces of glass in it. And I found a pop-top in it. And I think part of a set of false... No, I'm just kidding. But anyway... <laughs> But, you know, it popped top glass, little bits and pieces of metal, wire. So I said, this is ridiculous. So I had a soil test taken, four plugs taken out and sent to a chemical laboratory. I said, where'd you get this stuff? They said, well, we got it in an old landfill down here. We'd bought some property nearby, and they'd scooped it up, and they also added to it a lot of sacks of fertilizer they'd been using on a campus. I said, what's in the sacks? They said, sludge. I said, sewage sludge? They said, yeah. You mean to tell me you went to the sewage company down here and you got the sludge they rake out of their tanks and you bought it and you put it on my property? Yeah. The report came back. 
I had lead. I had traces of several heavy metals on my beautiful garden. I got so mad. I got so upset about that. I made those guys come over there with the front end loader and they dug down about four feet and they scalped my beautiful garden and they hauled it all away, the whole thing, and they brought trucks in and gave me some different soil. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that our own people would do that when here I am studying and putting this thing out on the radio and television against heavy metals. You don't use uh, human excrement, the sludge that comes from a city sewer to fertilize your crops. I never heard of such a thing. Certainly they repented of that and never did it again, I hope. But you ought to know better than that. Now, you know, uh, I don't know how many harmful germs or harmful things live all the way from a cow's mouth through all four stomachs and then clear through about ten miles of intestines and out the back end, but I don't think many of them survive. So generally, by the time you use just plain old fertilizer, plain old bull, on on your crops you have got an absolutely pure substance just exactly as God meant for it to be and you can get some pretty good crops well we had our vine and our fig tree all people will walk everyone verse 5 in the name of his God and we will walk in the name of the eternal our God forever and ever and in that day says the eternal I will assemble her that halts and I will gather her that is afflicted and her that I have driven out, and I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation, and the eternal will reign over them in Mount Zion forever and ever. Well, let me just quickly go through some of this. What about cities? What's wrong with cities? Think of the new city of Jerusalem, the heavenly city. I could read many, many chapters here, Isaiah 60, the whole chapter, Jeremiah 36, the old waste places will be rebuilt, but let's go to the second chapter of the book of Zechariah right quick while we're here in the Minor Prophets. Zechariah, the second chapter. Verse 1, I lifted up mine eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, Where do you go? And he said, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof, what is the length thereof. Question right quickly with regard to unanimity, harmony, and equality among God's church and in God's government. Which is the back door of the temple in the New Jerusalem? Does anybody know? What is its shape? Four square, right? How many gates does it have? Twelve, doesn't it? What is the name of each gate? One of them is Matthias, isn't it? And one is Thaddeus, and one is Bartholomew, and one is Andrew, and there is John Gate, and there's James Gate, etc. Which is the biggest gate? They're all the same size. Which side of the four is the front? It's all the front. It doesn't have a back. There's not a delivery entry. There's not a backyard enclosed in, opening on an alley in God's great city. What about the gate that's called Peter's Gate? Is it the main gate? I'm just saying that in passing. Verse 3, Behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him and said, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls. Now, Jerusalem is the city, but in the big city will be like villages with green, verdant areas all about them and in between. So the city that God describes in the millennium is more like 
a whole collection of villages than it is a giant city the likes of Los Angeles or New York today. Now, in Los Angeles, they build a giant, sprawling, filthy, crime-ridden, wretched city right on top of four to five feet deep of some of the finest topsoil in the world. The people eat food that is grown in the desert nearby. They go out in the desert, in the Coachella Valley, the Imperial Valley, and up north, and they fertilize it, and they bring all of that chemically fertilized. You've seen the ad where the guy, my name is John Cameron Swayze, and he filters the sand. He says, would you believe you can grow this right in sand? Sure, you can grow it in a glass of water if you want to throw the kind of powerful chemicals in there. Sure, I believe it. And that's what they do. So every day and every night, the trucks are coming back and forth across the grapevine, and about 3 a.m., the farmer's market is open, and all the big chains are buying their lettuce and all of their great vegetables and so on from these farms out in the valley. And here is a huge city, and New York is a huge city. I'm not really certain that this jacket I'm wearing should have been on a cutting table in Korea or Taiwan or Hong Kong or in the Jewish garment manufacturing center in Midtown or wherever it is in Manhattan. I'm not really sure that it's right for tens of thousands of individuals to be specialists in cutting and sewing and using these big machines in a clothing factory with the din and the roar and the whir and the click of machinery going back and forth like so many ants into a little house with a greasy, smelly cable in a black little corridor taking their bodies up about uh, 72 stories and down a corridor to sit at a desk and cut cloth all day while millions of young American girls couldn't darn your socks without stabbing all of their fingers and possibly bleeding to death. I'm not sure that's right if you follow me. I'm not sure it's right that food should be mass-produced by a few farmers with artificial pesticides and chemicals, frozen or put in vast government granaries, sold to you in packaged form with all kinds of chemicals added, and then you sit and eat it and say, boy, that was good. Or you go to the restaurant and you say, that's one of the tenderest steaks I ever had. Well, it ought to be. They've been tenderizing it for the last six months with every kind of thing they can buy. And, of course, what do they feed the cow? Well, it would be far better, in my opinion, and I think the Bible supports that, for families to teach their children such things as even how to make clothes, for men to know how to make harness and violins and carriages and furniture. I don't think I'd have all the physical problems I've got if I was able to get my exercise at my life's work, which was my family and my home instead of having to get my exercise by sports, by competitive sports like basketball. I've got too many broken bones, too many injuries, and so on. So I have my aches and pains like you all do. So it'll be like towns without walls. And why no walls? Well, because no threat of war, no fear of keeping somebody out. Look at the walls that divide the world. We hear about the bamboo curtain. We hear about the iron curtain. We know that Jerusalem, I'm sorry, we know that Berlin is separated by the great huge wall. Did you hear just the other day of the family that had sewn together plastic raincoats? And can you imagine the, 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 the desire in those people's minds of living in like a vast prison who 
under the threat of possibly going to jail, maybe they could have been killed, were over there diligently sewing together bits and scraps to make their own homemade hot air balloon and to escape out of the grasp of communism to come to freedom. And yet we have freedom and look how we pollute it and mistreat it and take it for granted and how we are wrecking and ruining the very soil under our feet. And they come to freedom because what we've got is so infinitely better than what they've got in the communist countries. For I, says the Eternal, will be under her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. And it describes in verse 11, Many nations shall be joined to the Eternal in that day and will be my people and I will dwell in the midst of them and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me unto thee. You know, I'm not sure there will be any such thing as a building more than maybe four or five stories high. I'm not even positive or convinced there will be elevators in the kingdom of God. I'm not a bit convinced yet that there will be such a thing as a city of more than 50,000 population, whatever is required to have a combination of enough talent so that we could produce fine art and fine music and fine literature. But that basically the entire kingdom of God will be an agricultural, agrarian society based upon the family unit and those families grouped according to their racial and ethnic structures in their ancient lands. Each nation, each race, able to excel, to exceed, to produce the finest of which that ethnic group is capable. And there are many scriptures to back me up in that, where it shows how God is even going to say, Egypt and Assyria is the work of his hands, and so on, regathered and placed in their original boundaries, their original areas. I want to take you into a brief little exercise in as to whether or not free enterprise and a medium of exchange will be used in the millennium. Will we still have money clear on up in the late 20 hundreds in the kingdom of God? Will we reach in our pocket and pay for things with money? I think so. Here's why I think so. They did in ancient Israel. Even in God's law, he said if the way was too far for people to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, they could take their firstlings and they could sell them and bind up money in their hand and go to the feast and there pay for what they had need of. So a medium exchange is not wrong as long as it is not abused. I'm going to read you, and the children can pay attention to this because I think it's an interesting little analogy, about the modern little red hen. Once upon a time, there was a little red hen who scratched about the barnyard until she had uncovered some grains of wheat. She called her neighbors and said, If we plant this wheat, we shall have bread to eat. So who will help me plant it? Not I, said the cow. Not I, said the duck. Not I, said the pig. Not I, said the goose. Then I will, said the little red hen. And she did. And the wheat grew tall and ripened into golden grain. Who will help me reap my wheat, asked the little red hen. Not I, said the duck. Out of my classification, said the pig. I'd lose my seniority, said the cow. I'd lose my employment compensation, says the goose. Then I will, said the little red hen. And so she did. At last it came time to bake the bread. Who will help me bake the bread, asked the little red hen. Well, that would be overtime for me, said the cow. I'd lose my welfare benefits, said the duck. Well, I'm a dropout and I've never learned how, said the pig. Well, if I'm to be the only helper, if the other three won't help, that's discrimination, said the goose. Then I will, said the little red hen. And so she did. She baked five loaves and held them all up for her neighbors to see. 
They all wanted some. In fact, they got together and they demonstrated outside the little red hen's house and they demanded a share. But the little red hen said, no, I'm going to eat all five loaves myself. Excess profits, screamed the cow. Capitalist leech, yelled the duck. I demand equal rights, protested the goose. The pig just grunted. But they painted unfair picket signs, and they marched round and round the little red hen, and they shouted obscenities. And then the government agent came and knocked on the door. Yes, said the little red hen. I am the government agent, and you must not be greedy in our society. But I earned the bread, said the little red hen. I sowed the wheat. I reaped the field. I baked the bread. Exactly, said the agent, and that is the wonderful free enterprise system. Anybody in the barnyard can earn as much as he wants. But under our modern government regulations, the productive workers must divide their product with those who cannot work. And they lived happily ever after, including the little red hen who smiled and clucked to herself, I am grateful, I am grateful to my government. But her neighbors wondered why the little red hen never again baked any more bread. <laughs> if you'll turn to the 19th chapter of Luke, in the 19th chapter of Luke, Jesus Christ of Nazareth gives us a very interesting analogy. He says in verse 12, A young nobleman went away into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered to them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy, use it, work with it until I come. Now pounds, you know talents, you know that analogy as well. A talent was a weight, but a weight of heavy metal. And a pound is a weight, a pound of sterling silver. It really is a monetary value here as much as a weight. You know that the, the, a lot of nations have, like in Italy, a pound is lire, and uh, like in, uh, or libra, you know, stands for pound. And also in, uh, in the Latin languages, uh, pesar, you know, P-E-S-A-R, you speak Spanish, no, is to weigh or weight. So... Peso is a weight, even in the Spanish language, or peseta in Spain. So it is a weight of heavy metal. It's money. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded those servants to be called to him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And the first came and said, Lord, your pound has gained ten pounds. Trading what? It doesn't say trading goods. They may have bought and sold goods, but it merely says trading. But at the basis of trading, being able to purchase and then to trade, bartering, buying and selling, was money. Your pound has gained ten pounds. What was his reward? Strip it away from him. He has gained far more than he should. Take away nine and leave him one and distribute it equally among all the others? No. Well, thou good servant, because you have had authority or been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. Now, that's a pretty fine reward to be able to govern and to rule ten cities of maybe 10,000 or 20 or 30 or 50,000 people apiece for being faithful in business. And the second came, saying, Lord, your pound has gained five pounds. He said, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is your pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin, because I feared you. You were an austere man. You take up that which you lay not down, and reap that which you did not sow. 
You're the wealthy absentee landlord. You give it to us and we do the work. Kind of a protestation latent in that statement. A kind of a protest there. I knew you're austere. I don't like you that way. I knew that you reap where you don't sow. That's not right. It's a protest by the one who didn't go anywhere, didn't do anything, just salted away and left it sitting there. And he said, Out of your own mouth will I judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank? Is banking wrong? Here's Christ's example, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. Now this is an analogy. Usury is not correct translation, by the way. It is interest. Because the Bible does say usury is wrong. This is mine own with interest. It is not the word that means over, you know, gouging or the wrong kind of interest, but it just interest. And he said, take unto them that stood by, take from him the pound and give to him that has ten pounds. And he said, Lord, he's already got ten pounds. But I say unto you, unto everyone that has shall be given. And that really means spiritually. It's a spiritual lesson he's giving us, but he uses a monetary and a business analogy. And from him that has not, even that which he has shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them. And that's what the churches in this world don't seem to understand. Bring hither and slay them before me. We must allow Jesus Christ to rule over us, and he must be our boss and our master. Let's turn to Amos, the ninth chapter. Back to Amos, the ninth chapter. I won't give you the other dozen or so scriptures I've got here that illustrate many, many points, but just to say that if you look into all of the various statements about the holy city, about the way the nations are going to be regathered, about the highway that will be there to gather them out of Assyria, and you let your mind dwell on the total infrastructure of a modern civilization, sewage disposal and removal, Waste and solid trash removal, electricity, jet travel, the internal combustion engine. You are wise enough, you have enough guide in the Bible, the Word of God, to actually resolve in your own mind how these things will finally be changed and what will be made beautiful and right and good. What is there about Branson you might want to change? Clutter. Narrow roads, too many people, traffic, and why are they here? Well, because they, where they live, maybe in the south side of Chicago, they can't go to a neighborhood place and sit down and, and hear uh, the family, a family there, put on a terrific show. And because where they live, there aren't any nice little lakes and ponds and rivers. And where they live, they can't go trout fishing. And where they live, there aren't people who make interesting figurines and great needlework and, and terrific little pieces of pottery and, and make interesting tables and clocks out of cypress and so on. They don't live in the filthy tenement districts, in the filthy apartments, and in the filthy walk-up complexes in these wretched cities in the industrial east. They come to a place like Branson to escape to escape a wretched environment and to get where there's some glitter and glamour and bright lights and, and some excitement and some fun and some places to go at night and some good food to eat and some curious things to see and to absorb a little bit of interesting nostalgia out of a past, Shepherd of the Hills, the original old settler's cabin, the bald knobbers. Why? Because somehow 
everybody in our country, especially in our country where we glorify the West, believed that the good old days were the days of people pioneering families in a cabin with themselves and their own resources and their own back and brawn and muscle and brain close to the land and living their lives in the good old days back when the West was being populated and discovered. There are hundreds of thousands of Americans that will search all over to try to get a little bit of that nostalgia and to pay for it because they have that longing inside of them. The kingdom and the government of God is going to restore that kind of a way of life, except infinitely better than the way of life of our ancestors. In the ninth chapter of the book of Amos, beginning in verse 9, Lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. He's going to save physical Israel, the bulk of them, at least enough of them, to repopulate the earth alive. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and raise it up, raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and of all the heathen which are called by my name, says the Eternal of hosts that doeth this. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him that sows seed. And the mountains will drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. When we were at Gunnersville, one of the families came by, and we couldn't do more than take one little tiny sip of each and leave it there, but they brought by some dandelion wine and some strawberry wine. And this lady said, I picked these strawberries myself. And they had, you know, uh, produced this family-made wine. I said, well, did you stomp, them out, uh, stomp the juice out with your bare feet? She said, I thought about it, but I didn't do it that way. I once had some wine that was made from the sap of birch bark trees up in Prince George, Canada. A family in the church actually tapped the trees and fermented that stuff, and it was clear and powerful. I'm not sure that was wine. It was something that was good, but... Uh the mountains will drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt, and I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. But that's the cities the way they used to be and the way we see them described here, not the Chicago's and the Detroit's and the Los Angeles and the Dallas, Fort Worth and the Houston's and so on of this world. And they will plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof, homemade. That's the best kind. And they shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. I'll tell you, there was something about that, and I still to this day, you know, there have been a few times, not often that we've done this, but I'd go to my locker, I'd get a cut of elk, and we'd thaw it out, and I'd sit down to a meal that my wife had prepared, and the salad was our radishes and lettuce and everything that we had grown out of our own garden. And the elk I had gotten and brought back from my hunting trip. And the potatoes and the carrots or whatever we had or the corn I had grown out of my own garden. There have been those few times, a lot of times where we've had some part on the table that we produced ourselves, but a very, very few times where everything on that table, but maybe the salt and pepper and condiments and so on, we had produced ourselves. You know, you just absolutely rejoice over that. That's such a marvelous feeling. You say, man, this is good. You exclaim over every bite. You think, oh, this is so good. Nothing tastes better than spinach you've grown yourself. Natural 
naturally, no chemical fertilizers. It almost burns the roof of your mouth. It's so good. And the tomatoes that we produced, big, bright red things, and they've they got flavor. These hothouse whitish tomatoes you get in restaurants, you can't even taste them. It's just like, yuck. And, you know, you break an egg and it just kind of splashes and runs all over the thing. I'd break my eggs and they were deep orange and they'd just sit up real firm and nice because the chickens, you know, I didn't have my own chickens. We had a place to, to go where we could get eggs from chickens that actually cropped on the ground and they threw the lettuce and uh, extra salad and vegetables into the chickens and so on and they were able to crop and eat what chickens ought to eat instead of just sitting on wire, you know, and looking at each other with half their beak cut off. Yeah, I wonder what's going on. We saw a whole truckload of them coming down the road the other day on their way to the market and they'll throw those things in there and you know what they do? Shuffle them all in on a big spot, throw a switch, and electrocute them. Takes all the blood and, free, and, and just stops it right then and there. So when you're eating the leg, you look how black and dark it is next to the bone, that's the blood. And we're told not to eat things with blood. Well, the flesh, the way it is constructed, if you can stay away from that part, you can avoid that. But they electrocute those chickens. Fry them right then and there. Send them to the electric chair. And... Then they run them through a huge machine with big old rubber teeth on it, and it just kind of grinds them in there, and all the feathers are plucked off of them by a huge big machine. And it's all done. And all over the country, we've got chicken McNuggets and chicken breast sandwiches and fast chicken places. Do you know how many hundreds of millions of chickens it takes every single week to feed America? Did you ever think of that? I'm flying over the southeast, and you see these little white things down there, just like blocks, just long white. You know what they are? They're the tin roofs of tens of thousands of huge barns with hundreds of thousands of squawking chickens in little cages in there being fed on conveyor belts, a lot of mash with chemicals and so on, and the eggs coming along underneath or sell some of these kids out there gathering them up, but it's a massive industry. I'm not sure that ought to be. I think it's far better for somebody to have about three different varieties of their own kind of chickens running around the backyard. And then when it comes time to catch one, the kids can have a ball and run out and try to tackle it, you know, like we used to do on my grandmother's farm. They learn a lot that way. I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they shall build the way cities and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof, and they'll make gardens and eat the fruit of them, and I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, says the Eternal, my God. Let's turn to the twelfth chapter of Hosea in closing right quickly, and beginning in verse 2. Hosea 12 and verse 2. I wish I had another hour just getting warmed up to this topic, but I've got to quit. The Eternal has a controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob. And then it talks about Jacob and how he overcame with the angel and wept and made supplication in verse 4. Verse 6, turn to your God, keep mercy and judgment, and wait on your God continually. And in verse 8, Ephraim said, yet I am become rich, and I have found me out substance in all my labors that shall find none iniquity in me that were sin. And God responds, I am the Eternal your God from the land of Egypt, that will make you yet to dwell in tabernacles as in the days of the solemn feast. He will regather them, and there will be a time in that beginning period, believe it or not, in the beginning of the millennium, where all earth will be dwelling in booths or temporary dwelling places, and that's where the literal picture of the feast begins, at the very beginning of the millennium, before there is even time for anyone to construct a home. The whole world will be like refugees, uprooted from where they were, and brought to wherever God is going to settle them. And here is the picture of how God is going to begin to reconstruct a beautiful, wonderful world. 
I wish I had time to really investigate that thoroughly and look into every aspect of our society and in every way, the way it ought to be changed. But you can follow along in your own Bible study and think of that in during the Feast of Tabernacles and when you get back home. It is going to be a marvelous time. And one thing in conclusion to say to the young people, oftentimes, you know, you hear sermons, you kids do, about the coming wars and about destruction and about the resurrection and the second coming of Christ. And you begin to think time is just closing in on you and you don't have much time. And pretty soon it's all going to be over. And here you are just looking at life like, well, well, when do I have my chance? And I want to grow up and I want to have fun and I want to meet people and do fun things and someday I want to be married. Well, listen. If you're in God's church and with God's families, and even if you're an unbaptized child, with your family under the seal of God's protection, you have the best opportunity for the world to come because time is opening up in front of you, boundless, to where you uniquely, unlike millions of children in this world, will live right on over into this time I'm describing. And you will be the human physical leaders in the world that is going to come. You'll be the ones living in, under these fig trees. Your parents won't. They'll be spirit beings. I was going to read a scripture that said, when you try to go to the right or the left, you'll hear a voice that says, this is the way, walk ye in it. And talking about even before any evil could be done, an angel will say, hold it, you know, and teach you the way to go. The younger generation are the ones who will inherit all these things we're talking about. We're to be changed and to be spirit beings. Well, it's been good to be with you in this very brief time. I hope you'll all give Mr. Rondart a very good warm welcome tomorrow when he's with you for a couple of days during the feast. And I'll see you all again next year. A lot of you brethren, of course, in between that time when I come for a mini campaign or see some of you back down in Tyler. God bless you all and have a marvelous feast. It's been good to be with you.